Welcome to the 130th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. Still getting used to that new theme song. I think it's a banger. Yeah, nice composition. Who'd you commission for that? Someone that I found online. I used the website Fiverr, which has kind of transformed from like a cheap job gig service website to like a kind of normal freelancing website. And um, I checked out a bunch of composers there and this guy really impressed me. He's got um, top 40 hits that he's co-written, which is pretty awesome. There's not too many of them on there that have that. And yeah, I thought it, I thought it turned out pretty well. So, But we are here to celebrate my birthday, Brian. We, we'd like birthdays here on The Goods. Getting some deja vu. Yeah, because this is the second time we've celebrated my birthday, and it's not going to be the last time. So two weeks ago, uh, I had us watch Recess Schools Out, and then we talked about the TV show Recess, and that was a lot of fun. And so this week I went for something, I think you could call it at least a little bit different, and that is the 1996 Danny Boyle film entitled Train Spotting. So, um, Brian, I, I kind of uh, introduced this as one that was meaningful to me in a certain way last week when I was telling you what I'd picked Right. I'm curious to hear about how that is. So I had never seen this one before. It has some extreme moments. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. I was wondering how many trains were going to be in this movie, Dan. The answer is not very many. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, I don't even know if there's any trains. And if they are, they're not plot central. When the title popped up on the screen, there was like a train whistle sound effect. It was like, that's not a train sound. I don't know what sound that was. Mm. I, I want to talk about the title because I, I actually think the title is pretty clever. I'll talk about that in a minute. But let me kind of lead up to why I picked this movie. So back in 2006 and 2007, when I was a freshman and sophomore in college, was when I was really getting into movies, I would say for the first time. And I did what uh, plenty of college freshmen have done, which is I printed out the IMDb top 250 list and just started going from one basically down to 250 and picking out any one that looked even a little bit interesting. Why'd you print it out? I guess this was still 2006. Yeah, I probably pulled it up online. I, I definitely had a printed out copy at one point, but um, it, it was actually good to check it online because I think it regularly updated. Yeah, I mean, this was the season when the era that, like, whenever a Christopher Nolan movie came out, everybody's got to upvote it to number one or whatever. It seems like it'd be constantly shifting. That's a good point. It was a year away from The Dark Knight screaming up into the top four. It might have even, like, held number one briefly. Um, but you're right, yeah. Um, but, you know, the ones that were in the top 50 stayed on the list, they just shifted around some, you know, and new entries kind of popped up. And I wasn't going religiously one on down. So it's not like, oh, there's a new number 46. I got to stop what I'm doing. Start again. Yeah. But I stopped counting when I got to 100 of the top 250 I had seen. And I probably watched a solid third of the list in that one or two year span. Wow. Um, a lot of movies I, I really still cherish. Uh, movies that... I listed in my top 100 favorite movies when we were going through them a few months ago. One of the movies I watched was Train Spotting, the one that we're talking about today. Again, so as I was watching all these movies, um, what I would frequently do is post in a Facebook group called the Ridiculous Arguments Group. Now you can hear me talk about that in some past episodes. Like I think I talked about it in the Internal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind episode. It was this Facebook forum 
uh, that one of my friends got me into. And we mostly just talked about movies, but we had other arguments and debates and discussions on there. But there was a thread that was just called movie reviews, and it was by far the most active thread. And people would just post the whatever movie they watched and whatever they gave it out of 10. Basically what Letterboxd is today, but instead of five stars with half stars, it was a one through a 10. And basically the same as Letterboxd, because there you have to choose from a half star, which would be a one, up to a five stars, which would be a 10. And you can write a little blurb. So here's what I wrote when I watched Train Spotting in... 2007, I wrote Train Spotting. I gave it a six out of 10, which would be the equivalent of a good on the is a good scale, by the way. I wrote, This movie was too messed up, gross for the sake of gross. What's with all the poop humor in scare quotes? Just nasty. It's got a lot of great lines and a lot of cool scenes, but it was just too messed up for me to really enjoy it. I guess it paints a terrible portrait of heroin addiction, which was probably the point. Overall, a good, enjoyable movie, but I was too distracted by the gross stuff. I mean, I feel like you hit the nail on the head. Not that bad of a uh, summation of train spotting, I would say. So something happened. Oh, by the way, just in case we haven't laid this out here, this is a movie about heroin addicts and. Uh, Scottish heroin addicts specifically, and it's structurally, I would call it a Dan movie in structure. It's it's very shaggy, hangout vibe. It's like a different kind of hanging out. I don't know. It was bleak enough to suit me. I was I was not ever like, I didn't feel like my wheels were spinning. This is a like upsetting disturbing it's it's not meandering though in my opinion okay so the fact that it's got like some of the cruelest things that you'll see in a movie that purports to be like a fun exciting movie broke out of the shackles of like a dan richard linklater hangout comedy that's right it didn't feel formulaic it didn't feel like many other movies that i've seen the summary blurb on Amazon called it a black comedy about unrepentant heroin addicts. And I'm like, okay, so am I going to laugh at this? What does unrepentant mean? And <laughs> it's just that, you know, they keep saying they're going to stop and then they don't stop. Exactly. That It's a cycle. That's the structure of the movie is one scene they say they're going to stop break their addiction and the next scene they're injecting themselves again so 2007 six out of ten that was my initial reaction my opinion of this movie changed a lot over the next like five years and i didn't watch the movie again this was just me thinking about the movie brian for years and years if you had asked me what is my least favorite movie in the world i would have said train spotting wow that's why I have picked this movie as a Dan birthday special to celebrate my honorary least favorite movie of all time. That's a place of honor, truly. What's your least favorite movie, Brian? Little Monsters starring Fred Savage and Howie Mandel. Oh, uh, Kevin Arnold. Wow. Yeah, that's my least favorite film. I find it very mean-spirited and surprisingly off-putting and offensive for a children's film there's just like a lot of dark stuff there's a lot of profanity and i guess that was more common in like 80s movies aimed at young people like there's lots of swearing in the goonies and even back to the future but i don't know it just feels mean-spirited it's like a kid makes friends with the monster under his bed and then joins the monster going around terrifying people and it, like starts becoming a monster himself. And then I guess the moral in the end is don't act that way. But <laughs> it's like, I, I don't know. It, I, it didn't it didn't float my boat. Wow. Well, that's maybe maybe you'll have to choose that one for me to watch at some point. So why did I come to call this my least favorite movie ever? That's different from saying it's the worst movie ever. This one is just the movie that made me the most mad, and it's because it has things in it that are compelling, but it just rubs your face in its gross darkness so much. What does a blind man see? Dark blackness. Black darkness. 
Nothing. Nothing. What is that from? Garfield. I was going to say, I, I just got to guess that it's the, <laughs> what's the something something 1978? 727. Yeah. Anytime you say something that sounds like 10% poetic, but also really stupid, that's got to be the guess. <laughs> and so I I came to this with the memory of me despising this film and i was actually very surprised to find that i gave it a very slightly positive rating and review when i first watched it because in my mind i just i hated it from the start and never liked it at all and was annoyed that it had some good things in it but just terrible content and probably annoyed that it's so lauded right that's a big piece of it too is that everybody seems to love it they're like oh such a fun wacky movie oh it's got such good energy I was like, if you want to see, like, a baby die, okay, yeah, the boy, that's... Yeah, this is our first dead baby movie on the podcast out of, like, 200 films we've covered. If you want to see someone literally... I'm, I'm going to spoil in all the my least favorite bits. Someone putting their face in a poo-filled toilet. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I'm having the time of my life here, man. <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, we'll dive into it dan but <laughs> it does have an energy all throughout like yeah. the big thing for me is the editing is always like frenetic it's always felt to me like it was moving and it's like half gross out reality but also half like kind of zany surreal space like the barrier will break and suddenly real rules don't apply anymore. And I think the clearest example of that was the toilet scene yeah, where like he's rooting around in the slime and then it turns into like a fish tank that he can crawl into. Right. Yeah. And he's like in a Zen quiet, clear water thing when he dives in. Yeah. Let, we're going to talk through a lot of the high slash low points but I just want to give a little more context for this film. So, like I said, 1996, Pulp Fiction came out in 1994. And at least anecdotally, I've never done like a thorough review of indie movies from this time. But at least anecdotally, the second half of the 90s was like every single indie that came out was some sort of Tarantino knockoff. And this is a Tarantino knockoff with its own spin. I mean, it's got the same stupid characters shoot the shit by like talking about culture from 25 years ago that Tarantino has here. They talk about Sean Connery and James Bond a lot and some musicians from the eighties and stuff. And it's a Scottish film. So everybody's got a Scottish accent. Yeah. Shout out to Andrew guy who's appeared on our podcast, not your brother, uh, but Andrew Milne who, who hosts the two friends watch podcast. He's the only guy from Scotland. I know. Really great dude, and I'm sorry that the film that I most closely associate with Scotland is one that I have such negative feelings for. I'd like to hear what Andrew thinks of it. Like, do do Scottish people feel a particular affinity for for Train Spotting? I, I didn't see if he'd logged it on Letterboxd. Any Scottish people out there, come find us on the Goods Film Podcast, or even if you're not Scottish, come find us there. TheGoodsFilmPodcast.com. That's where uh, you can find a link to our Discord. I don't think you've said it yet, but this won some poll as the all-time greatest Scottish film and I think top 10 British. Yeah, I hadn't seen the, the greatest Scottish film or anything like that. I did see that the BFI, which is like a not just like some magazine, that's the British Film Institute. They're like the ones that hold the sight and sound poll and stuff. They declared it the 10th greatest British film of the 20th century. There is a lot of movies in the 20th century, Brian. It, it topped movies like Bridge on the River Kwai and stuff. I mean, at least Brief Encounter beat it out. Brief Encounter was number two on that list. The Third Man was number one on that list. Those are probably my two favorite British movies, and I was glad they were up there. But top 10, man. Yeah, wow. What other Danny Boyle movies have you seen? So I should point out here that uh, this movie kicked off maybe subliminally, maybe not my grudge against Danny Boyle. I, I really don't like Danny Boyle as a director. I find he over stylizes stuff and not in a fun way. It's just like kind of a try hard way. 
Like it's trying to be cool and artsy and it always gets in the way of the, the, the story I want to see uh, or maybe don't want to see in the case of uh, train spotting. <laughs> Interesting. This is an extremely stylized movie. Yeah. So I've seen, I have seen Slumdog Millionaire. I watched it around the same time, like within a year or two of, of watching train spotting. I've seen Steve Jobs and I've seen Yesterday. And I think that might be it. What about you? The only two I've seen are Slumdog Millionaire and 28 Days Later, which I would recommend 28 Days Later if you haven't seen it. Yeah, I do want to see that one at some point. I just watched 28 Weeks Later because it was popped up on Amazon. I don't think it said that he directed that one. I didn't like it as much as 28 Days Later. Mm, Okay, gotcha, yeah. He also made a legacy sequel in 2017, 20 years later. Which made me wonder, how the hell is anyone still alive from these junkies 20 years later? Have you seen the sequel? No, I haven't seen it. Uh, as you might or might guess from my prelude, I wasn't exactly barging down the doors of the cinema to get in line for this one. Well, I know your usual completionist instinct, especially before we record. I thought you might have watched it. I was strongly considering watching it, but I don't know if I quite had tough enough stomach to do it all in one go uh, i may have to put it off till next week yeah i i would consider watching it like you said i do have the completionist streak and if we had another day i might have watched it before recording but i really just did not want to so i you know i didn't <laughs> so this movie it was actually danny boyle's second but his his breakout movie one thing i do like about the movie is i think the title is good so Train spotting it has like two layers to it, the the meaning. So one is that it's a slang for like injecting yourself with heroin because what you're doing is you're getting marks on your your arm that kind of resemble a track from the the needle bruising your arm and from the injection. But then also it's like apparently a British word for sort of lackadaisically sitting around and watching the trains pass. It's like I don't know the equivalent of bird watching, but it's train spotting. And I think this is a good metaphor for what's going on in the story because these characters that we follow are just watching the world pass them by as they're kind of in this drug-addled stupor for most of the movie. And that's kind of part of this opening monologue where he talks about like all the things that a person could be doing if they were a productive member of society. He just like stream of conscious then blurts them out is almost if it's like an overwhelming checklist that he feels like he would have to do if he weren't on smack or something um kind of an interesting uh way that this this movie opens with that right yeah the main dude is ewan mcgregor and a lot of this movie he's monologuing like you said stream of consciousness narration and it's like mile a minute really fast talking and the editing cuts usually match it like we'll get it like a rapid montage whenever he's doing this often but one of the things he was saying during one of these blitzes is that basically being an addict is a full-time job and it also like it fills your time and it fills your thoughts and he's like think about all the other things i would have to be concerned about if i wasn't completely fixated on getting the next hit and just you know i like to talk about the little minutiae of what i see on the amazon presentation but when he's like if i wasn't getting high all the time i would be getting pissed and chasing birds and the <laughs> co- the subtitle said getting drunk and chasing girls like translating the the Scots. <laughs> yeah, it's, you got to have like a full on translator there. <laughs> it's like technically the same language, but not in any sort of recognizable way. There's like more guttural stuff going on there, like not quite German guttural, but it's kind of like, I guess, higher than the guttural. It's like in the uh, the back of the mouth, like near where you swallow. There's like lots of noises and air coming out in weird ways when you're talking in a Scottish accent. And yeah, I definitely had to have subtitles on as I was watching this. So yeah, the the protagonist is named Mark Renton 
sometimes gets called Rent or Rent Boy. And yeah, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Ewan McGregor. And one thing I like about this movie is he looks really cool in this movie. He's got this buzz cut. And I think a buzz cut is like the least cool haircut you can have, but he just makes it look so cool. And he's got this kind of weird style. Sometimes he wears like these kind of crop top, too tight shirts. You look at him and you know he's the main character. Yes, he's he's handsome and stylish. But yeah, his group of friends that we follow. So we follow him and the, the other group. There's a guy named Sick Boy. He's got this bleached haircut and he's kind of a womanizer. And he's the guy who's doing most of the blathering about like James Bond and such. There's also this dopey looking guy named Spud. So he's kind of the nice guy, kind of quiet natured. And then there's a couple of people who, at least at the start, I didn't think were junkies. It's kind of hard to tell because they're all hanging out together. One is this guy named Begbie, and he's just this really psychotic, rageaholic, alcoholic guy. Yeah, angry and violent all the time. He reminded me of Tommy from Goodfellas. Yeah, always looking for a reason to get in a fight and bash a beer bottle over someone's head or something. And the last one is Tommy. And Tommy is just the super friendly, athletic guy, just a cheerful guy to have around. He's got this really healthy and loving relationship with his girlfriend, and he seems stable. I think we see that he does some drugs on the side, but he's, as opposed to the others, the one who has the drugs on the side and the life in right in front of him as his main thing. And the drugs is just a hobby for him. Uh, I don't think he, but it's important. He does. He starts the movie not doing heroin. He just does other drugs at the start. And yeah, so the movie just basically alternates between these debased drug fueled stupors with these monologues from Renton in as the sort of narration. And then him struggling to basically stay sober when he's trying to, to break the habit. And whenever he is feeling bad. I was really just in general, whenever anything's going on, we get some sort of gross or like dark or just terrible thing that happens before it pivots to the next plot thread. So that was kind of the structure, at least as I saw it, we'd have some period, something terrible would happen. And then we'd move to some new period in his life. Right. And I watched Les Miserables not too long ago. And honestly, it's kind of the same vibe. In that, it's the squalor of, like, 1830s Paris, but it's the same deal. It's, like, lower-class people, and just any time, it's like, maybe something's gonna go right now. No, something terrible happens. People start selling their teeth and, like, developing sexually transmitted infections and oh God. just dying in the gutter. It's like, oh my gosh, this is a popular musical? That's kind of gross, yeah. But yeah, I mean, you, you gotta have some fondness for seeing characters humiliate and debase themselves over and over again for this movie to work for you. I guess like the quote unquote fun aspect of it is that Danny Boyle does have some energy here and there is some like formal aspects of it that I do admire quite a bit that you're right. The editing is, is quite good and keeping the movie flowing. The soundtrack is really good. There's a bunch of, it's obviously mostly um, British hits. There's a, a really great opening sort of montage with Iggy Pop's Lust for Life, which is just a, a perfect and brilliant rock song. Going on in the, the background. I really liked when he moves to London towards the end of the movie. There's some instrumental that plays when it's just a montage of London. It's like, I got to look this up because I'm digging this. Rolling Stone picked it as like one of the 10 greatest movie soundtracks ever. I don't know if I'd go that far, but I think it's I think it's an excellent uh, movie soundtrack in terms of just having some some great rock numbers on it. So one of the first episodes we get is is yeah the the worst toilet in Scotland, which you may as well call this movie the worst toilet in Scotland as far as I'm concerned. But basically, he's decided he's going to break his addiction, and so he gets from his dealer these suppositories, so things you put in your butt, and they're supposed to make you 
have like fewer withdrawal symptoms or, or something along those lines. I got to admit, there's like details of this that just kind of I didn't necessarily catch because they're talking so fast and it's jumping from scene to scene to scene. But one thing that they make clear is that when you are a heroin addict, you get constipated real easily. And so when you go off heroin, all of a sudden you're pooping a lot. And so then we follow him when he goes to the bathroom and he, he's, he's got to go. So he fi- ends up going into the worst toilet in Scotland. And it really is just horribly disgusting. It's like clogged and overflowing with brown muck. And there's no seat. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the walls are splattered. And it's, yeah, it made, it literally made me nauseous. And that is not something that often happens when I watch a movie. But then it gets worse because he poops and he realized, oh, no, my last hit, my suppository went in the toilet when I pooped. And so he starts reaching in and he's like gagging and retching as he's trying to find it. And then he has to lean his head in. And I was like, I was actually worried I was going to start gagging as I was watching this again. The pacing of it. I mean, it's almost like there's a couple moments where it's almost a comedy. It's like, okay, so he he does the pooping and it's like, first you're grossed out because the toilet is so gross. But then he has such a relieved look on his face because he's pooped. And, you know, he's gotten it out of his system. But then, you know, the dawning that, oh, he's going to get the suppositories back. And, like, you're following his train of thought non-verbally. It's like, oh, oh, no. And then he turns around immediately and dunks his hand down in the mush. It's like, oh. And we're just along for the ride. Yeah. But you're right. It kind of morphs into this surreal, like, he gets sucked into the toilet and defies the laws of of space and physics and yeah it's it's you already described it just a very odd uh mise-en-scene that we see and i guess the idea here beyond just like oh i'm danny boyle and i can do some slick shit is like when you're on your your drug you're kind of in a blissful place that renders the rest of the world just noise and nothing around you i guess at some point he he and his friends go to this club, a dance club. And again, like there are moments here in this movie where I'm like, okay, there's some energy to this. Like it reminded me of that movie that we watched. Everybody wants some really early in our run where they go to a bunch of bars and they party and it's fun to watch them do that. And for like a scene here, it's kind of fun to watch them do that. But then again, something really, something bad happens to him. So he, he hooks up with this woman and uh, she's very cagey when they hook up and they, they do have sex that night. And then when he wakes up in the morning, he's kind of passed out outside her room and basically realizes that, hey, she wasn't just another person at club. She's a high school student. She's underage. And she was just happened to be at that bar. So now he's got an underage high school girlfriend. And yeah, it's like, I don't know. This is terrible. Why am I? Uh, I don't know. This movie just makes me want to find things to not like in it as part of it, too. <laughs> Around this time, also, we have another poop joke. There's a lot of poop in the first half hour of this. I didn't need that much poop. There's like a, a dude who is in such a stupor that he poops his pants and ends up flinging it all over. Well, he poops the bed and then, yeah, he's got a sheet full of shit. And it gets flung all over the kitchen because somebody grabs the sheet from him. Disgusting. One of the the characters that we've mentioned, who's really ends up being, spoilers, just the heartbreaking, tragic figure of this film, Tommy. So he's the guy who's the nice guy, the athlete, the uh, the one with the steady girlfriend, and one who's not on heroin, notably. He makes a sex tape with his girlfriend which Renton steals from his friend. And then like he and his other friends kind of watch it. It's a horrible thing to do to someone. So I want to talk a little bit about that because I didn't read it the first time. Like, so he takes the tape and I didn't think of it as like surreptitious. I thought like Tommy knew that he was taking it, but very clearly, very soon it becomes apparent that that's not the case. It's like, oh, well, how did he even know it was there then? Like, I mean, somehow, somehow Renton knew this tape existed. Maybe his friend was boasting about it. I don't know. I guess it, it wasn't exactly clear. And part of the thing is it's in a box that's about 
great goals. It's like a, a clip show of great soccer goals. So is it possible that Renton was trying to take it for the soccer goals? I don't think so. I think he knew that he was stealing his friend's sex tape. He must have known about it, but yeah. But then, like, with all that it leads to, it seems like at some point Renton would have cottoned on and been like, oh, shit, I'm sorry, dude. Here's your tape back. But that never came to light. Yeah, so what happens is the girlfriend gets really, really upset when they realize that the sex tape's been taken and gets mad at her boyfriend, and then they end up breaking up as a part of this fight. And this sends Tommy on a spiral. So he basically goes to where, after Renton is relapsed at some point... He says, I think I want to try some of that shit. <laughs> you don't want no part of this. What, what does he say in that? Yeah. You don't want no part of this shit, do we? I think I kind of want it. <laughs> And so Tommy decides to try heroin and it's spoilers. It's not going to work out well for him. You know, what would really be trailblazing is a film about addiction that painted it as a positive thing. <laughs> it's like, there's so many gangster movies and drug movies. And it's like, you know, they, they starts out, it's like this cool edgy life. And then it's like, actually it's dark and dangerous and bad. Like your after school PSA told you in fourth grade. You know, it would mix things up if it just stayed that way or went the opposite way. Like, oh, this is going to be bad. And then they're high rollers at the end of the movie. Interesting. I feel like I'm trying to think if I've seen some variation on that. I guess the first Godfather, I know there ends up being more of them, but the first Godfather has an element of that where Michael Corleone doesn't want any part of that gangsta life. And then he gradually gets sucked in and then the movie ends with him you know, being the new godfather. So he kind of goes out on top as the powerful one in the family. Oh, good point. So another scene that just made my made me sick to my stomach is, uh, and this is, I was going to be, I almost didn't pick this movie because I didn't want to rewatch the scene because I knew it would make me angry and queasy. So Sick Boy, he's one of the, the junkies and his girlfriend have this baby, I would estimate to be like, probably one year old, one and a half years old, probably, yeah, probably less than one and a half, probably about one. Um, and we see this baby on the fringes. And at first it's, I would call it black comedy because it's like juxtaposing this baby just sort of hanging out and seeming to be doing okay while these adults are injecting poison into their veins. And then it takes a real dark turn because they find that the baby has died from neglect and they just find the dead baby in the crib and it's horrible. They have like this terrible uh, fake baby made to look like a corpse. And I had to cover my eyes. I couldn't watch it when they revealed the baby. It's, it's pretty rough. I mean, I want to talk about this scene for a little bit. Yeah, let's, let's do it. So, yeah, well, a couple things about it. As soon as I saw a baby in this environment, my thought was, how is there a baby here? Because I don't know too much about babies, but I have heard they require attention. You need to, like, keep tabs on a baby. And clearly these people are not doing that. So it's like, how? How has it lasted as long as it has? So you can't really say that I was surprised, although it is still shocking to see this. Have you ever had a dream, Dan, where you've forgotten about something really important? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, the I feel like the most common one is, like, an exam that you have to take, and it's like, wait a minute, I forgot that this was today, and I never studied, and I never went to class. I've had that one a bunch of times, but I've I've had one where it was a dog. It's like, oh, I forgot I had a dog, and I didn't feed it for two weeks. Um. So, I mean, that's... That's what you get here. That's what you see on the screen. And it is, it's, it's hard to watch. Yeah. And there's the mom there. So it's the girlfriend of sick boy who of course goes into a frenzy and is only soothed when she takes another hit. It's like the only thing they can do. They don't even deal with the baby. They just all go take another hit and yeah, it's rough. But also I thought it was kind of funny that, 
when this is going on, this horrible revelation, everybody turns to Renton and says, say something, Renton. It's like, what? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why is he responsible? It's not his kid. Is he the orator of the group? It's like, he's got to eulogize. He's got to give the yugugly. Or maybe just he was like kind of not reacting at all. But yeah, I don't know. And this is actually not the last we're going to see of the the dead baby because one of the, the scenes just a couple minutes later is uh, Renton has a really bad overdose. It looks horrible, by the way. Like, I, I will say one thing about this movie is that it does convey that the high is pleasing to the people and also conveys that it's horrible, the impact it has on your life. So, like, it doesn't skimp from either one of those extremes, I guess. Which I feel like there's a lot of movies that are drug addiction movies that are just miserable. Like they don't have any sense of like fun or like why would you want to do drugs? Like this at least conveys from a human perspective, like why, what the appeal is to those druggies, you know? Not that I'm saying that I want to or that I think anyone should, but like I can at least comprehend why someone would go down that path. Yeah. So this moment when he, has the overdose is another really stylistic scene because they've got him like strapped to a board or something. He's lying on his back and he shoots up and then he sinks into the carpet and it like forms a grave around him that he gets shooped into. And then he's like observing the world from down in this six foot hole as they're like carting him around and trying to get him out and ultimately shoot him up with whatever it is that counteracts that Narcan or adrenaline or something. Also seen in Pulp Fiction. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that's kind of been happening here is he, he's always been on the, the edge of getting arrested and going to prison for a long sentence. And they make a big hullabaloo about how hard prison life would be. And I, I got to say, I was kind of removed from the stakes at some point because like when your life is this focused on smack, it's like, I don't know, just they kind of lose their humanity. So I, I was like, maybe it'd be good for you to go to prison. Like, or would it really be that much worse? I mean, I guess it would because then you'd be away from the drugs and stuff. But like, they're like, oh, we can't let him get caught by the cops. And so they have to hurry him out where the cops were going to find him. And instead... Yeah, they have to bring him to a hospital where he's anonymous and he gets the, whatever you call it, the, yeah, the, the narco something, whatever it is that breaks your, your overdose. But his parents find him in the hospital and say, all right, you got to kick this habit. So now we're on another, you got to, he's going to try to break the habit. And this time he doesn't have the suppositories to have a a slow come down. He just gets locked into a bedroom. He needs more blankets and less blankets. Exactly. Yeah. I kind of feel like that was directly spoofing this scene because it had very much the same energy, but he starts having these hallucinations and like these convulsions and stuff. And he starts seeing different characters, including Tommy, who's now in a horrible stupor from his hero, new heroin addiction. And we see the baby crawling across the steel, the ceiling and it turns its head exorcist style and its face is all squashed. And this is really freaky and made me mad too. I felt they could have, the way they set it up where the baby is crawling towards him on the ceiling and you see the back of the baby for a long time and it like builds up to the reveal of the face. I actually thought the face was not gross enough when we finally see it. Okay. The one time they pulled their punch, I guess. Yeah, I thought if this is the way that they're building to it, it's got to be really, really bad. Yeah. But, I mean, maybe they were going for comedy here. I, I don't know. Uh, maybe. Who knows? There were a few times when I was wondering, is like, is this meant to be funny? Or at least silly, yeah. It's, it's just so extreme, it's like hard to call it that. So, as he's kind of on his recovery, word starts getting around that from his group, there is an HIV scare. So they're all needle sharers. This is the ostensibly the early mid nineties. Um, and yeah, everybody's got to go in and get tested for, for HIV. And so they keep saying, are you clean? That's how, that's what they're basically saying. Have you tested and gotten a negative test on HIV? 
So Renton goes in and he is lucky to test negative. Apparently still seeing his high school girlfriend every now and then because she comes in. She's like, well, are you negative? But we learn that Tommy tests positive. And at some point, uh, Renton goes and visits him and he's just his life has completely crumbled. He's like living in a, a house where he's torn up every single thing and sold it for drug money and like sleeping in total squal- squalor. It's like that Simpsons meme, don't tell people how I live with Lenny, but in gruesome real life. Yeah, there's a character on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia called Rickety Cricket, and he starts out the show as like a wholesome, successful guy. And as the show goes along, because of the actions of the main character group, his life just gets worse and worse and worse. And that's who I was thinking of in this this movie, because that's Tommy's arc. It's like, things were going good for Tommy, but not after a run-in with these guys. So this is when about when Renton decides that he's going to leave Scotland, he's going to leave Edinburgh, and he's going to move to London and try to get a more legitimate career selling, I guess, as a real estate agent or something. And he does that, and <laughs> except at some point, one of his friends shows up at his doorstep, and eventually another one does. And so it's like his, his old habits die hard like his demons are literally following him around to some extent and they try to rope him into this dope slinging scheme so i guess out of the the blue for like the last 25 minutes this becomes a little bit of a crime caper it was like boogie nights and babylon it's like okay i know about this big drug score and we're gonna you know do a high stakes deal with a kingpin now in this last minute act of the movie. It's like, oh, this is almost like a different film. That's actually an interesting comparison. Those ones, I hadn't thought about that, but you're kind of right. Those movies, it feels more like this little standalone episode in here. It feels like the movie just kind of, yeah, it reshaped itself with, with in the last act. And the craziest thing is it works for them. I know, yeah. They, it's like, it, it, that was almost kind of funny. It's like funny at a macro level it's like everything has gone horribly 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 for them and then this deal goes perfectly basically they talk a little bit how they could have negotiated for more but they score this huge thing of heroin and then they go and sell it for four times as much and then they get the payout and then they have the money and they leave and like no one gets shot there's no goblin toby mcguire Bringing them down to like a hell pit. Right. Nobody dies by getting hit in the throat with a mace, a morning star. <laughs> Nobody gets eaten by an alligator. It's just like, here you go. Oh, <laughs> you mean the drugs that they somehow got for a suspiciously low price were pure and not suspicious? Okay, let's go. One thing that happens here around the end um, as well is that we learned that Tommy died it, a horrible death. So he apparently got in his head. We don't see it on screen. Thankfully, we we hear that he got in his head that he wanted to get back together with the girlfriend from the start of the movie. And so apparently he got like a feral cat and was going to like bring it to her as a present. Just imagine you're like ex-boyfriend junkie, HIV positive probably wearing a bathrobe shouting at you from outside with a feral cat in his arms about how he wants to get back together. Like a boombox holding it up over his head outside the window. <laughs> it's like, yeah, the, the totally fucked up version of say anything. But of course she said no. And apparently this cat from its feces and like clawing him and stuff gave him brain toxicity yeah, toxoplasmosis, which I had to Google, but apparently that is how you get it. And had these abscesses on his brain, and then he died in his apartment, and nobody noticed he was dead for days. And so they go to his funeral. And man, just whereas like Renton just kind of floats along, you know, he has some unpleasant things, but he kind of is fairly level one scene to the next. You know, he's still just the dude. He has some highs and some lows, but he's never too far off his median. You know what it's also like is like Forrest Gump versus Jenny. That's true. That is. Yeah. It's like Jenny gets stuck with AIDS and all these debasing things happen to her. And Forrest just kind of stumbles through life. But the movie ends with the the kind of the way this caper plays out. 
So they're now celebrating their their big payout. They go to a bar and it's actually kind of a, a nice and interesting scene because at first they're like, this changes everything. Now we can like live the good life, which first of all, 16,000 pounds, even if you bump that up some to dollars, split four ways. So they let's say it's 4,000 pounds and you're going to adjust it for inflation and such. Let's just say it's $10,000 a person in, in 2023 dollars. That is like a, a significant chunk of money, but that's not like a your life is now qualitatively different amount of money. Right. And especially if you're a junkie with a history of blowing through money on drugs, but I don't know. But so it, it does kind of thematically work though. Cause for a minute they're thinking about, Oh, our, our lives are different. And then they go to a bar to celebrate and then just everybody is their old selves again. It's like Spud is kind of dopey and, and aimless Begbie gets in a fight where he smashes a glass over someone's head. Um, Sick Boy is still kind of a D-bag. And I guess Renton gets in his head that uh, I need to get out of this. I need to get away from this. I'm just like, the cycle is continuing here. And so the very end of the movie, he steals the, the sack of money, the briefcase or whatever it is of money. He leaves a little bit for Spud, who's the nice guy of the group. And he runs off with the rest. And one of the last things we see is uh, Begbie going into this huge rage and tearing up a hotel room. But that's pretty much how how train spotting ends, Brian. Right. That's the story of train spotting. One thing about Spud. So he's like the goofy, dopey, kind of the comic relief, I guess. And... Early on, there's a scene where he says he's got a job interview, but he's always too stressed to answer the questions. So Ewan McGregor says, I know what you need. And he gives him meth. And so (laughs) then he goes to this job interview and, you know, it's smash cut to him just speaking a mile a minute. And, you know, in this unhinged rapid fire screed, meth-fueled, crazy editing, constantly breaking the 180-degree rule, and, of course, always still in a Scottish accent. It's like, this is completely incomprehensible. But, like, that was a moment that I laughed out loud in this movie. Yeah, that scene is legitimately funny, and I I like the exchange where they say, they're talking about his experience, and something comes out, and they say, oh, so you lied on your resume? And he says, well, you lied in your job listing. And then he basically is like, well, I'll look forward to hearing from you. And like, does the awkward reach over the desk for a handshake type thing. <laughs> that is a pretty funny scene. <clears throat> so I guess let's talk some good things and some not so good things, Brian. So or or maybe some moments or scenes that that we might have missed that you you want to shut out before we wrap here. OK, so one thing you didn't say yet, the very end of the film kind of echoes the beginning and so with the difference that now Renton has this sack of money but he like grabs it and he's marching out the door he's he goes again into one of these rapid fire monologues where it's hard to capture the spirit of it you kind of got to watch and listen to it it's like yeah it's like here I go going again doing it all gonna be clean there's a cadence to it and it's it keeps going it's an incredibly unbroken sentence moving from topic to topic and yeah the gist of what he's saying is that he's got a plan now and he's gonna be free and he's gonna be different and he's got the world ahead of him and it's his oyster which we've heard like five times you know really we're seeing an aroboros here it's like this is the same point he was essentially in in the opening moment of the film that's that's true that's a good point and it in the one hand it is different because we've kind of seen him struggle a little bit and be at a better place and because he actually has it seems had a breakthrough in his addiction because he has like one last hit and he's like but this time it really was the one last hit but then on the other hand it's like, yeah, so, but it's just the same cycle and over over and over again, like you're saying. It's like, does it have any more meaning at the end than it does at the beginning when he says things are going to be different, when he's going to 
do stuff like get a job, pay a mortgage, find a girl, have kids, or, or like whatever things that he's talking about that someone does in a plan for life. I don't know. That's a good capturing of the style. The way that you just did it is what he's saying. Um, it also made me uh, think of, do you remember that movie? It's kind of a funny story that we watched about uh, the guy who goes to the mental hospital. Right. Yes, I do. That that actually ends with a similar thing. And in, in that one, we actually see him doing the things at the end. But I bet that was intentionally an homage to this. Yeah. The movie that I've seen that feels like this film is Fight Club. Oh. In the sense that it's got a whole lot of monologue and it's this person living just this squalid urban life. But like at first it's shown as this is edgy and cool. And actually this is the real life. You know, this is really experiencing reality. But then there's elements of psychotic break and you lean a little into the darkness and find actually this is bad. This is not what you want. And it makes Fight Club feel a little less unique because Fight Club came like five years after this movie. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And Fight Club also has some of the stylized over the top grossness, although it's not the same. That one's more violence, but um, it's got some of that, too. Good comparison. So I will say that. There are things in this movie I like, and the fact that it's pretty well made and like has some fun energy to it is part of the reason that it, it annoys me how much of a negative response I have to it. It's because like it, it would be nice if I liked this movie, you know, because it has a lot of things in it that I value. I already I think I already mentioned them all, but just like the soundtrack and the sort of like a moments of a fun hangout vibe, but only for moments at a time um, and sort of like this young guy kind of wandering and figuring out his life. Like I, I like movies like that in general. It just so happens that this one is for a heroin addict living the most depraved life that you could. Um, and just, we see some of it in such grossness. And that's really what bugs me about it is like, I just get the sense that some of it has a, a purpose and there's like, yeah, there's thematic purpose to pretty much everything that happens, but like, it just still feels like it's, Danny Boyle being like, oh, aren't I naughty? I'm going to show this really gross thing. Oh, wow. Look, you just watched that. So provocative. Wow. And it's like, I don't know. It's just so impish and stupid. And it just makes me mad. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> it's not too often I come out swinging negative on a movie in the goods. No, it's good. And actually, I'm glad that you assigned like a really upsetting film because I've been wondering if that was something that was possible to do. Uh, at some point, I got to like dredge up some ones that have really bothered me. Yeah, I kind of wonder. I don't know. I just maybe I don't enjoy movies that are this bleak and especially like showing the bleak. Like I know there are, is a whole, you know, universe of films out there that are just dark edgy shit like i don't know even some great art films have a reputation for being this is just a dark edgy film like uh salo or salo or however you say it the um the pasolini film right yeah 120 days of sodom yeah and i don't know maybe i just don't like films that are all about bad things happening to people maybe it's just not my scene or maybe Something about this one, like the kind of blend of playfulness and bleakness really set me off. Who knows? I don't know. But what else, Brian? Anything else you wanted to, to bring up before we get to the rating? Well, I just want to drive home. I was looking for the specific quote, but I can't find it. I think it was a quote from Boyle saying that he wanted to make the most energetic film or mm. something. And I think it delivers on that kind of i mean definitely there are rivals to that title but this just felt frantic to me a lot of the time and i dug it the way that it was cut um yeah there's a drive to it i felt you know what just occurred to me this is the same year that baz Luhrmann did his romeo and juliet which has a lot of the same just crazy over the top energy on the editing 
I wonder if that was another thing that was kind of in trend in the mid to late 90s. I wonder if there are other movies with that energy. Yeah, I think it probably was. I guess that's a little bit of the the Tarantino thing. The thing is, like, I guess some of the Tarantino movies, like even Pulp Fiction, it's got some dark, a lot of dark stuff that happens in it. But I don't know, something about that one, it's it it just it has an extra dimension to it that it, it gets goes beyond here's all the the bad naughty stuff and has some like depth and sparkle to it that I find appealing. The character. Right. I would say Pulp Fiction is a lot funnier. And also Tarantino like captures his loves on screen. Like just he shows the things that he's like really passionate about and you can feel that he likes those things. Yeah. The the anything where it's doing the pop culture stuff, I just thought was corny as hell here. I just didn't think it was very well written or or very intriguing. They got a couple of theories about like oh, every artist goes past their peak and people just convince themselves it's good and they throw out some examples of that. And it just felt like they were doing the like a virgin rant, but their own version of it, you know, from Reservoir Dogs, the famous opening at the diner when they're talking about like a virgin. Mm. What I like here, though, is, yeah, sick boy is always talking about Sean Connery, who is one of the most famous Scotsmen. And I think that's why he comes up in conversation so much. But what made me laugh was there's a discussion between Ewan McGregor and their drug dealer. And he says, Ewan McGregor says, sick boy, I'm worried about him. He has no moral fiber. And the drug dealer says, well, he knows a lot about Sean Connery. And (laughs) Ewan McGregor says, that's a poor substitute. (laughs) That's pretty good. Yeah. By the way, McGregor gives a good performance here. I really did think it was a, a good performance. He modulates the different tones pretty well, such that I always believed that this was a person going through this crazy stuff. Right. And he's just got a good screen presence. He feels like a star. Like, yeah. you can feel him breaking out. And I was wondering, what other lead performances from Ewan McGregor have you seen, Dan? Um, well, I mean, Obi-Wan Kenobi I already mentioned, and I would have to look at a list. It's got to be something else because I feel like I know him from other stuff. Right, so, but is there any you have in mind? Yeah. So someday we might have to watch Big Fish by Tim Burton. He's the star of that one. And then also <laughs> Robots 2005, which we're definitely going to watch at some point. That's oh, the uh, animated film. He plays Rodney Copperbottom, the protagonist robot. Gotcha. I feel like, isn't that a meme or something for you guys? It is a meme for us guys, specifically my brother and his friend circle. For whatever reason, Robots 2005, it's like always a meme to have that suddenly enter the conversation. (laughs) But I'm ready to rate, Brian. Uh, What about you? Anything else? Yep, I'm good to go. So is it good as our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, toward a good which is an eight out of eight so brian you go first follow your own heart i say it is train spotting from 1996 good yeah it's honestly pretty rare that we get like a significant gulf between our ratings in this show so i'm curious to see where this is going to end up um so for most of this movie i was in six out of eight territory very good and I was really like, I'm I'm on the fence. You may have scaled me back a little bit, but I was feeling a seven and exceptionally good for this movie because I dug the hell out of how it's edited. Uh, I didn't ever feel bored. Um, there is some extreme content in this one. And I think that's what ultimately like drags it back just a little bit. Um, so it's a high six for me. Very good. I can definitely see why it's remembered and i saw a lot of its dna like persisting in things like fight club which previously i would have called fight club a pretty unique movie but it everything comes from somewhere okay dan let it out what are you thinking (laughs) so for me there's two ways that i can rate this movie and it's what my heart says or it's the lowest that i can in good conscience while still honoring my brain rating if that makes sense Mm -hmm. so it's like i could either just 
go straight up vitriol and say, this is a one out of eight. This is a very not good film. I, I hate this movie. It bugs me so much. How often do I get to say I hate movies? I'm not a movie hater in general. I like movies. This is a movie that I don't like. But the movie, the question is really not, do you like it? And the question is, is it good? And so I feel like I'm, I'm kind of torn. Like this is my one chance to slap a one on a bad boy. Uh, that I, I just I, I made the movie that makes me angry that so many other people love. There's not too many times that I enjoy being the contrarian. I don't feel like I really can in good conscience give this a one because it's not a very not good film. It pisses me off, but it's not a, like an artless film. I, I can't say that it is a bad film. I can't say that it's a not good film because it's got a lot of it that's really interesting and compelling and just in spurts that would be nice if it like this spurt was cut off from the rest of the movie where we're watching dead babies and faces and poopy toilets and stuff like that. So I think I'm going to give it just a three barely slash a one if you if in my heart a one, but I'll put it as a three in the record books because I feel like that's what it what it genuinely deserves from my my point of view. So I don't know. Maybe I'll just get angry and we'll open our next episode with me saying, God damn it, I, I should have given Train Spotting a one. <laughs> we'll see. It feels like it's had some ups and downs for you. I mean, you gave it a, a middling review to at the very start. That's the thing, too. Yeah. So I've always been able to see some some appeal in it. But yeah, it's no George of the Jungle, too. No, it's not. It's really it's it's like the inverse of George of the Jungle 2. A movie whose craft is just utter crap, but who just I enjoyed so much sitting through. And that one has some poop in it too, but I don't know. It also has Christopher Showerman in it. Dan, what would you do if we put on Train Spotting 2 and instead of Ewan McGregor, it's Christopher Showerman? <laughs> Christopher <laughs> I could tell you it would get a higher rating than train spotting if that were the case. But I do feel like I owe it to myself to see T2 at some point. Yeah, why did they call it T2? I feel like that's owned by Terminator 2. Yeah. I saw somewhere it's like an in-joke title. So I don't know what that means if it's explained in the movie or it's some in-joke that is shared by people who enjoy the movie train spotting, of which I am not an inside member. But I don't know. So... This might be funny. Uh, when I've heard this title all throughout the years, I assumed it was like a hipster. I was picture. Well, I've never seen Lost in Translation either, but I was picturing something like about the ennui of like living in a foreign country and not really fully belonging to that culture. I don't know. I, I thought it was going to be about people on trains and like just seeing the world from a distance and passing through it. And Maybe that's not 100% wrong, but it's like 95% wrong. Yeah. It probably has more opium suppositories than you were imagining when you heard. That is spotting. correct. Oh, that reminds me of a great office moment from maybe my favorite episode of The Office where Jim and Pam go to Dwight's uh, beet farm as a and b and Jim is recounting his romantic night away with Pam. And he says something like, I didn't think Dwight would be there at all. And I thought there would be less. I can't remember what it is. I think it's manure. I thought there would be less manure. Some, but less. <laughs> which I always thought was really funny. What I think is funny is that Dwight's cousin, Moe's, is like the executive producer of the show. Oh, yeah. Mike Sure. Yeah. He, he also made Parks and Rec. He also made Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He also made The Good Place. Yeah. Yeah. He has a couple of projects in the pipeline, too. So, But anyways, yeah. So thank you for indulging me in birthday part two. So, Brian, what will we be watching next week? So train spotting in the loosest of senses felt like a shadow pick from train month to me. It's got train in the title. Okay. <laughs> Not a very trainy film, but you can't deny that it's there in the name. So the next movie that I'm going to queue up is kind of a shadow pick from Circus Month back in the day. It's the, the big circus film I feel like we missed. Just by coincidence, I picked it up recently on Blu-ray and I want an excuse to watch it. 
It's The Greatest Show on Earth from 1953, starring Charlton Heston. The Greatest Show on Earth. So this is uh, an epic circus film. It actually won Best Picture. Whoa. Supposedly the first movie that Steven Spielberg went to see as a kid. Oh, have you seen Fablemans? Yes, I saw Fablemans, and that's how I... I mean, I had heard of this movie before, but I didn't know about that. And I think it will, in some ways, be a good foretaste of our upcoming Movies About Making Movies Month. Okay, cool, yeah. Speaking of circus movies, Brian, um, are you familiar with the movie The One and Only Ivan? I have not seen it. The closest I've been to knowing about it is recently there was minor hubbub because it was one of the titles taken down from Disney+. Plus. They, yeah. they didn't want to pay royalties for it anymore or whatever is involved in that. So it got gutted. So it's an adaptation of a book that I read to my kids. It has Brian Cranston. Yes. So Brian Cranston plays a leader of a cheap mall circus with animals. So I was thinking of you quite a bit, uh, Brian, because I know you like Brian Cranston from Breaking Bad. I know you like circusy things. It's not exactly a circus, but it's like kind of a mini circus. Um, and although it has CGI animals, which I know you're not fond of, it might be the best done CGI animals I've ever seen. Okay. Um, I'm not saying it's a good movie. I don't think it's a good movie, but it it has some elements there that are up your alley. Right. On Buzzed on Movies, they said it was not good, but I am kind of curious now. So, But now it's it's off the streaming service, so how am I even going to watch it? That's a good point, yeah. But yeah, greatest show on earth. I will look forward to watching that, Brian, and discussing it next week with you. Cool, cool. I wanted to pick something I hadn't seen before, which has not been the case for one of my picks in a long time. So mix it up. And I guess to kind of close out the, the train spotting discussion, would I still consider it my least favorite movie? I don't know. I, I have some cognitive dissonance about it, but it might be the movie that still makes me the most angry. So I guess in that regard, it is my least favorite movie. I don't think it's the worst movie I've seen, but maybe the movie that makes me the most angry. Yeah, so. I think that's an important qualifier because like you might think that Thomas and the Magic Railroad is more poorly made, but you don't hate it. At least not the same way. No, no, not in the same way, for sure. Not with the same vehemence. Yes. All right. Well, listeners, as always, thank you very much. And Brian, thank you as well. Yeah, join us again and listen with vehemence. 